Welcome to the Think Intentional Podcast, a conversation designed to help individuals become high performers in life, leadership, and nutrition. I'm Sergio Cortez, here with Darcy Kingry. Today we have Ted Wright. Ted is a speaker on Christian apologetics as well as biblical archaeology. He's also the founder of Epic Archaeology, an educational resource. He has appeared on numerous television and radio programs, including the History Channel's miniseries, Mankind, the Story of All of Us, as well as CNN's recent documentary on the historical resurrection of Jesus titled Jesus, Faith, Fact, Forgery. So Ted, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. For for those who aren't familiar with your work, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a biblical archaeologist and a Christian apologist? Uh, Sergio, uh, thank you for having me on. Yes. So a uh, little background. I was um, years ago, I was in the Cub Scouts and, uh, and then eventually the Boy Scouts. And uh, one of my leaders uh, really was a kind of a big history buff. And he would always take us to these Civil War battlefields. And uh, I, I grew up in the South. And one of the battlefields that he took me to, uh, took our group to, was a battlefield called Shiloh Battlefield. And it was in Tennessee. And in April of 1862, this battle took place for a couple of days, and it was one of the bloodiest battles in the Civil War besides uh, Gettysburg. And I remember as a kid uh, being there and just imagining what it must have been like to be on this battlefield over 100 years ago. So that really started my my interest in history. And it just, you know, as I grew up, it got more and more, uh, it grew more and more in, in, in myself and I began to ask deeper questions and other questions, and then I discovered that, well, there's a thing called ancient history in which there's stuff even older than the Civil War. So as I grew, my understanding of the past sort of grew with me. And then uh, as, I, as I became a Christian uh, at, at nine years old, uh, my interest in, in biblical history really began to start as well. And it wasn't until I was in the, uh, actually joined the U.S. Air Force back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and it was in the Air Force that I really uh, found archaeology and uh, wanted to pursue a, uh, a career in archaeology and join my interest in the Bible with archaeology. And that happened uh, one night. I was actually, uh, uh, Sunday night actually, was at my church and my pastor uh, told me he said he had something he wanted to give me. So he, he took me to his office after the service and he gave me a big stack of magazines. And it was, uh, it turns out it was Biblical Archaeology Review Magazine, which many of you many listeners may actually have read before in uh, having those magazines really and seeing that you could actually do history and, and dig up uh, history, literally being on the cutting edge of history with archeology span really sparked my interest. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I came back a couple of days later and I said, uh, I, I told him that uh, I think this is, I would probably want to want to, uh, you know, do the rest of my life. And so that's, that's kind of how I got started in it. Wow. Well, yeah, no, that's actually really cool that you just had that foundation from such a young age. Yeah. And, and how did Epic Archaeology come about? So, yes, that came about. Uh, Epic Archaeology came about a couple of years ago. Um, now, when I was an undergrad student in archaeology, and, and anybody who's ever taken a course in archaeology will vouch for this truth, and that is that uh, whenever you take a course in archaeology, a lot of professors, not all of them, but I would say the majority of them are, uh, to pardon the pun, very dry. 
and very boring. And so, but I knew that the subject, the subject itself is not boring. The Bible's not boring. Archaeology is not boring. But uh, why is it the case that, uh, you know, whenever you listen to a lecture or see something about archaeology, it's usually pretty, pretty uh, dry. So I saw that there was a need uh, for someone to make archaeology accessible to the average church person and make it exciting and, you know, not make it exciting, like try to make it something it's not, but really to present the material in a way that's engaging, uh, that is uh, relevant to a Christian's walk, uh, that, where they can see how archaeology uh, helps us to understand the Bible and really also uh, helps affirm what the Bible actually says. So I had the idea a couple of years ago to start it, and I kind of wanted to model it sort of loosely on uh, the Biblical Archaeology Society, but of course uh, my views are very conservative, so uh, I'm sort of a, con- a conservative version of Biblical Archaeology Society, uh, and I want to bring uh, really good articles and, and media and videos, things like that, uh, to, to really open up the ancient world and open up the world of the Bible, the biblical writers, uh, for uh, us modern people who live today who really don't understand what it's like to, you know, shepherd sheep or to, you know, <laughs> something like that. So when you try to, try to bring that ancient world to the modern world. Yeah. No, no. I, well, how, you know, how would you explain apologetics to, um, to non-Christians, what it is and, 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 and what its purpose is? That's a great question. So, you know, a lot of people hear the word apologetics and they, they sort of immediately their, uh, you know, their antenna go up and they're like, you know, is this uh, apologize? What is apologetics? You know, well, it comes from the Greek word apologia. It's first uh, Peter three fifteen, And the apostle Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the reason, the hope that's within you. And he goes on to say, do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, but the word uh, answer is the Greek word apologia. It means uh, a rational defense. So um, for those who are non-believers, really what apologetics is, is providing reasonable evidence, whether it's scientific or historical or archaeological evidence, uh, that what we believe as Christians is actually true. Um, not that it just makes us feel good or not that you know it, you know we have this emotional response to it, but apologetics is really about... Uh, knowing the rational, historical, and scientific foundations uh, for the Christian faith. Wow! Yeah, I love that, and I love and I love the quote and the and the Bible reference that that explains that. So, so when we read when we read the New Testament, you know, we all know. I mean, anyone who's been Christian or a believer long enough recognizes that you know the authors are writing what they see, what they experience, not just what they imagine. Um, you know, so it, it's truly their their personal experience um, that they write about yeah. and the things that they know. But so how so how do we know that it's factual? You know, there's so much. You know, there's so much. Uh, trying to think of the right word. There, there's so much uh, debate going back and forth oh, yeah. all the time, despite Absolutely. all of what we know as evidence. So how did how does the archaeology and you know. How is it really used to to investigate the claims and and to prove the historical facts? That's a great question, Darcy. So um, I would explain it this way, and the way I've been teaching this for uh, about twenty years or so now, and and I've sort of run this through a lot of tests, and I've asked a lot of people and and back and forth on this. But really, uh, so let's go back to the beginning and, and talk about the fundamental truth claim of the Christian faith, and and that is 
uh, the, some, the question that I often ask audiences when I go to speak at, at churches or, or small groups or whatever, colleges, college campuses, and I ask, the, I ask the audience, what is the one thing, the one truth that if it, if it were not actually true, Christianity would not actually be true at all? And, and that truth obviously is the resurrection of Christ, that Christ is risen from the dead. So the question about the resurrection centers on the question of history. And because you think about this, I mean, that, that event, the, the, the death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ happened 2,000 years ago. So what we're saying as Christians is we're asking people to believe in something that happened 2,000 years ago. So, so your question is really centers on the, on the idea of how do we know the past? Well, we know the past, and how, how does archaeology fit into this? Well, we know the past through what historians call primary sources. And it really is easy to remember. It's really just three. So if, you, if you're writing a piece of paper, you can just write number one, two, three, and here they are. The basics are this. Number one, eyewitnesses. You had to have someone to actually see the event, someone who had to have been there, someone who had to you know, have, have experienced whatever, you know, whatever it is, whatever the historical event was. Number two, historical records. The person had to have written something down, you know, whether it's in a diary or a historical inscription or a letter or whatever, whatever the case may be. And number three, the third primary source for history is archaeology. So we have eyewitnesses, historical records, and archaeological remains. And uh, you have all three of these. So now with the eyewitnesses, what you want is uh, you want early eyewitnesses. You want someone who actually was there. But with their historical sources, what you want is early attestation and multiple attestation. So in other words, you want someone who probably was living through the event. So in the Civil War, if you wanted to investigate the Civil War, you want to, you're going to want to study someone who, as a historian who actually lived through the Civil War, read their letters or diaries, whatever the case may be. Uh, and then you also want to have multiple attestations. So, you, so not just one person, but you've got multiple uh, sources, historical sources, saying the same thing. So when it comes to the New Testament, obviously the eyewitnesses, uh, we no longer can interview those. Uh, you know, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, <laughs> the Apostle Paul, uh, they've been dead for 2,000 years. So they, They'd be a great yeah, interview. Exactly. If you can get that interview, let me know. <laughs> I'll call you up. Yeah, give me a call on that one. But you know, what we do have, though, is we have the historical records, which are uh, the New Testament, um, I would say, is a historical record of the life uh, of Christ. And then we have, we have the archaeology. And again what, again, what the historical sources, what we want is multiple attestation, and we want uh, early attestation. So let me give an example of why I believe that the New Testament account uh, is reliable. Uh, uh, there's a lot of reasons, but it, you know we don't have time to go into all of them. But let me give you one just off the top of my head here. So think about this, and we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which, uh, and again, it depends on who you ask, but most scholars would say that very likely Mark was written first. And there are some scholars who may disagree with that, you know, and scholars debate about who was the case, you know, who, who wrote who wrote first. But regardless of that. Uh, regardless of who wrote first, we know that the four Gospels were written before Paul's letters, and that Paul wrote later. So let's just let's just take Paul's letters in, if that's the case. Operating on that assumption, if Paul wrote later, you read we got Paul's letters to the Romans, the Philippians, the Ephesians, and, and you know all the all the letters of Paul. Well, what is the one event in around the time of the New Testament 
that was a major, major event. That would have been the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. I would say most all New Testament scholars, most all ancient historians at this time of the, of the Roman period, or what's called the late Hellenistic period, would say that that is a very firm historical event. But notice that Paul, not one in one place in Paul's letters, does he mention the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That was in 70 AD, which means that the uh, accounts that we have in Paul's letters and also in the four Gospels was written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. The reason why this is important is because the, this is a document that was written in the time period of the eyewitnesses. So we've got early attestation, and not only that, we've got multiple attestation because we've got two Roman historians saying almost identically the same thing that the New Testament is saying. Now, they're not agreeing. They're not saying that they believe in Jesus, but they're recording about the history of what's going on in Jerusalem in the first century. And we have, we have Tacitus, who is a Roman historian. We also have a, an, another writer by the name of Josephus, who's writing as well. And they're basically saying the exact same thing that the New Testament is saying. So we've got multiple attestation. We have early attestation. And we haven't even gotten to the archaeology yet. In the archaeology, what it can do, and this is where archaeology comes in, archaeology can affirm uh, the historical basis of the text. It can tell us, does this person exist? Does this place exist? Did this event happen? And it, so it works, uh, archaeology sort of works as a forensic science to affirm whether or not these historical texts, such as the New Testament, are giving us accurate historical information. And I got to say, after, you know, been, I've been in this for over 20 years, and um, the New Testament is one of the most, if not the most, affirmed historical documents in the ancient world with archaeology. Um, I mean, things come to light all the time that affirm the historical basis of text. In fact, just recently, uh, they've discovered a road in Jerusalem that was um, uh, commissioned by Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman procurator who presided over the trial of Christ. Just last year, 2018, uh, an archaeologist working in Jerusalem uh, found a ring, a signet ring. Now, the ring was excavated in 1967. But it, was, but it was identified last year by an archaeologist working in the archives in Israel that it had the name of Pilate on it. So we've got artifacts that are just being found that people are not even trying to look for evidence in the New Testament, and they're finding uh, affirmation after affirmation that the New Testament is a reliable historical document. And that's just really uh, touching the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Wow, thank thank you for going into such depth. You know, it it amazes me on a personal level even that, you know, people dispute all of these facts both archaeologically and just, you know, from for the rec from the records, but you know, it it doesn't surprise me too much because they're still they're rewriting re more recent history um and changing history books based on, you know, what the what the public, you know, consensus is. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't so so, but it, but it's so, you know, and, and we've been fortunate enough that, you know, we had enough interest, you know, beyond, you know, our own involvement with our church and with Christianity to, to do an apologetics class. I think it was six or eight weeks. And we learned so much in that. And, you know, and the more I think I learn, and I think Sergio would agree that for himself as well, you know, the more you can't argue with the facts. Yeah. Well, you know, the issue, it comes back to, we were talking earlier about apologetics and, 
there's several passages in the New Testament. You know, the one we talked about earlier was First Peter three fifteen, but also Jude chapter one verse three. You know, uh, contend for the faith once and for all, and trust to the saints. But it really comes down to the issue of the heart. Um, you know, there's the head and the heart. And people will say, well, they don't have evidence. But then, you know, there's some people who, no matter how much evidence you show them, they still won't believe because the problem is not with the, with the mind. Now, some people it is, but many people it's the will. And so, but, but that doesn't mean we, we don't give them evidence because we, we still need to give them evidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, there's a very popular saying, and it goes, facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> Oh yeah, which I'm sure you've heard before. I yeah, you know I I wanted to ask you a little bit about pluralism, and you know what I understand from it is that it essentially states that all religions are the same, and thus all roads lead to heaven. Do you think this is true, and how does Christianity differentiate itself from? Yeah, you know you hear that a lot, and especially today, uh, this this whole idea of relativism and the fact that uh, you know. Because we we live in a society today where you know intolerance or is sort of really a catchword, and people are really sensitive to to anyone making a claim to absolute truth, or you know, uh, especially re- when it comes to religion. But there's a there's a fundamental uh, f- logical principle called the law of non contradiction, and it's the fundamental law of logic. Basically, this is just the rules of rational thought. It's it doesn't, as you said earlier, it doesn't care about your feelings. It's really just about rationality. It's basically this. The law of non-contradiction basically states that two contradictory statements cannot both be true at the same time in the same sense. So what this means is when you have religions that make completely contradictory truth claims, they cannot both be true. Now, you can hold, people can hold contradictory truth claims uh, individually. That's They do that all the time. But they can't actually be true. So basically the same thing as saying uh, the earth is round and the earth is flat. There are people today who believe the earth is flat. And there are people who believe the earth is round. Now, now, both of those cannot both be true at the same time in the same sense. Because the way that, that I, by I understand truth and the way I think truth should be defined is truth is that which corresponds to reality. And if we say the truth is that which corresponds to reality, then there is only one truth. And when you have religions that make completely contradictory truth claims, then uh, only one religion can actually be true. Now, that, that may sound very intolerant, but it, again, it has nothing to do with feelings or anything like that. It has to do with reality. Um, so uh, the fact that Christianity, uh, well, let me back up. You've got three major religious worldviews. And number one, theism. So belief that there's a transcendent, spaceless, timeless, immaterial being called God. Uh, so theism, and there are three major religions in, in theistic religions. You've got Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. So either either one of those three could be true. Okay, and then you have, so that's uh, under, uh, under theism. Then you've got atheism. It's the belief that there is no God. And then you've got pantheism, and it's the belief that uh, God is all, or the God is everything. So, again, going back to the law of non-contradiction, if all, if the law of non-contradiction is true, that, that two opposite statements cannot both be true at the same time, then all three of those cannot all be true at the same time in the same sense. Um, so if theism is true, and I'm going to just kind of 
start with that assumption, and we could you, know, you could go back and argue the case. But if if it can be established that theism is true, that there is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial being called God, then that by default eliminates atheism and pantheism. They cannot be true because if there's a God, then there obviously atheism can't be true. And, the, and pantheism can't be true because it's not the same as theism. So then that leaves you with um, it leaves you with Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, and then you can evaluate those three based on again uh, the criteria of looking at historical reliability of manuscripts, truth claims, and and other uh, such things like that. And I would say that uh, when you really begin to look down at at the uh, historical, philosophical, the theological and the archaeological uh, evidences for those three, I think Christianity uh, by far stands out on top as, as the most rational, coherent of the, of the views. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I mean, when you're looking at just the facts alone, right. you know, there, there can really be only one truth. And, and something will fall because of its lack yeah. of a foundation. And... Um, that's one of the, that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you as well because I think the perception for a lot of non-Christians and even some Christians is that Christianity is a religion but and, and this could be just my opinion but when I read the Bible I I don't see it as a, a religion. Yeah. I see it more as a relationship. And I think that was the primary aim for Jesus. He just wanted to create that relationship. Well, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a relationship on an existential level, but it, it, it also does make claims about reality. It does claim that there is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial being called God, and that Christ is, the, you know, the tomb is empty, you know, Jesus is risen from the dead. So I agree with you absolutely that it's definitely a relationship, and that's what it's all about, really. I mean, that's why, that's why God did what he did by sending Christ, so that we can have this personal, intimate relationship with Christ and with God the Father, uh, but the but it's true because it corresponds to reality, uh, not because necessarily that I, that I personally have a relationship with Jesus. Because you know, if we if we if we lay the evidence for Christianity just on my personal relationship with Jesus, well, I know a lot of Mormons and a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses who also have you know they they have very warm feelings about their own faith. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, have I'm sure you know a few. <laughs> we know a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> My, yeah. my actually, my my parents became Jehovah Witness Jehovah Witness when I was about eighteen years old. Oh wow! Are they still involved in it? Um, yes, they still are. Um, wow. But they 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 did, they were not able to convince me to uh, to change my my beliefs and my relationship. But but they still are. Wow! Wow! Well, just keep praying for them. Don't give up. Uh, thank you. I, yeah. I I will. So how do you how do you how do you defend Christianity? As not just another religion or, or a knockoff of Judaism. Um, you know, it's a great question. There's so many different ways that we could go with that. Um, so, I would start with you know looking at starting at the very foundational level. Um, I mean, I was I don't know if you guys know who uh, Frank Turk is and, and Norm Geisler. Uh, uh, I've worked, I used to work for Frank years ago um, with Cross-Examined, and Dr. Geisler and Frank wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And it's a great book. I would recommend that book to any of the listeners out there who want a really good overview of apologetics and what it's all about. But basically, in the book, there are 12 points that, that show that Christianity is true. And it begins at the very foundational level. It begins at the level of truth. 
what is truth, number one. And, uh, and then it, it builds from there. But the foundational, the foundation of all the Christian, uh, defense for Christianity is truth. And then it builds up, and I'll summarize it in really four questions. Uh, there are 12 in the book, but if we were going to, you know, summarize it in four questions, I would put it this way. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament reliable? And we could add number five, and did Jesus rise from the dead? So there has to be such thing as truth in order for Christianity to be true, because if there's no such thing as truth, then not even atheism could be true. I mean, nothing could be true. So there has to be such a thing as truth, and it's got to be that which corresponds to reality. Uh, so and number two, uh, does God exist? It is a foundational question. If there is a, if there's no God, then Christianity can't be true because it's a claim about uh, about the universe and about the world that the fact that God created it. And, and uh, in fact, even Jesus, Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. So, so that's a foundational question. And number two, or number three, rather, would be, uh, do miracles happen? And I, I don't mean like, do miracles happen today, but are, generally speaking, do miracles occur and, and have they happened in the past? Because if there is a God, if there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial being who created the universe by speaking it into existence, and just like Genesis 1 says, then, uh, then we can know uh, that miracles are definitely on the table. C.S. Lewis even wrote about this in Christianity and also in his book Miracles. He basically said, if there is a God, then miracles are possible. Uh, all bets are off. Because the reason why that's important is because uh, today many people are very, you know, they're, I'm sure you have friends that are very scientifically leaning and, and they think that science is going to basically uh, solve every problem and, and, you know, answer every question. But if there is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial being called God, then that means miracles are possible. And that means that uh, he can create a universe by speaking into existence. Uh, there's design in the cell. There's all kinds of things, just miracles everywhere that you look at. But then number, the fundamental miracle of Christianity, though, is the resurrection. So miracles are very important in establishing the truthfulness of Christianity. Uh, so if miracles happen, then of course Christ can rise from the dead. And then... Then we've got, we, we came back, we come back to the New Testament, and that is, do we have uh, an accurate copy of the New Testament, and does it give us reliable historical information? Because that is, it's the New Testament where we learn about Jesus. And if it's not giving us reliable historical information, then we're not, we can't be sure about who Jesus was. So I hope that sort of makes sense, but again, the, the four questions are, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? Is the New Testament reliable? And did Jesus rise from the dead? And I think if you if you answer those four or five questions affirmatively, you can make a very strong case for Christianity. Uh, and through the process of elimination, uh, really stands out head and uh, you know heels above every other religion. Wow! I, I love yeah. your explanation. And you know, um, I think when Sergio was in college, he was um, one of his classes was a literature class, and it was all about you know you know. And obviously, and it was about history, though it wasn't just you know wasn't just literature and fiction. It was history, and and in one of his, I don't remember the book that it came from. They kept referring, you know, to something I I use today because it's really from the Bible. Is you know you know uh, I'm 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 always quoting you know truth is love because love is God and God is truth. Yes, you know, and I so I really I really have a, a deep appreciation for your explanation because I'm always trying to share that with people that God Absolutely. is truth. 
you know absolutely that, is God. Yeah, for sure that's definitely the case and and, I, and if god is love and i mean obviously he is love and he expressed his love by sending christ then we should also be loving and i think also i mean to, to bring in a different angle on this I, I would even say that love is an apologetic as well um that when you you know when we love people as christ loved us i mean he even said it you know they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another so i think that apologetics is not merely just the rational aspects of Christianity, which it is, it definitely is, but it's also, it, I think we have, need to have a broader understanding of apologetics too, to include this uh, notion of grace and love and in relationships, because really we're not going to gain a hearing unless we build a relationship with someone. So it's very important that we, we know all these answers and we are able to you know understand Christianity and why it's true. But also, we need to love people and um, befriend them, show them grace, show them mercy, build relationships, because that's really where a lot of the uh, a lot of the walls get torn down when, when we when we act that way. Amen. And and yeah. as and as I get older and and I you know and I and I make sure that I that I focus myself more on God and that I catch myself when I'm heading in the wrong direction, that that's something that, that I'm trying to live by and trying to teach others as well is that is that's what we're here for. We're here to love each other and to love God. Absolutely. Yes. You know, and I, I, years ago I used to, <laughs> I used to be in sales. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you guys ever done sales <laughs> or not, but yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, I can tell because I was in sales, but I can tell when somebody's trying to sell me something and I just, I get turned, I just immediately turn off, you know, and, and I think that we've got to be careful when we, when we study apologetics and we use apologetics that we don't come across as sort of like salesman, yeah. you know, for the gospel. Or we, even though we do want people to accept Christ and we do want them to, to consider Christianity, um, Again, I think it's in the it is in the relationships that we really establish our um, you know uh, trust, uh, and then then we're able to get across this incredible information. I think I think a lot of times apologetics gets a bad rap, and uh, people will will you know some Christians will don't like apologetics because they've known a guy or girl who's really into apologetics, and they come across as real condescending and arrogant, kind of a know it all. Um, you know, I understand that when I was an undergrad student and I was studying apologetics, it, you know, you learn this stuff and you get excited about it because you're you want other people to know about it. But you understand apologetics is an art and a science. It's you know we forget we forget the art part yeah. and we just focus on the science part. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree for yeah. sure. It's it it's tough, you know, it really is. I think the challenge too is you know as Christians we. We want to be kind and respectful to other people, even when they're just, you know, being disrespectful to us. And then that's that's really Absolutely. just the mark of character. Can you really pass the test? And and that right there is a test. But the yeah. good news is that we have yeah. a God who is very gracious, and we can continue to fail and and learn from those lessons until we just continue to evolve in our character. Absolutely. One of the things, one of the things, one of my one of my friends in California, who's an uh, apologist, he's been around for thirty years. Uh, Greg Kokel uh, says this, you know, in our relationships with people and in talking with people about about spiritual things, we don't have to convert them. In fact, we don't convert anybody. I mean, the Holy Spirit obviously does the work, but He uses people. And one of the things we want to do is we want to sort of, uh, as Greg says, leave a stone or a pebble in the shoe so that they 
they think about what we're saying, and, and maybe the Holy Spirit will use that and and sow that seed, and know you know give them a, give them something to think about. Uh, but many Christians today, sadly, don't think very deeply about their faith, and so that's why I'm glad you guys are doing a show on apologetics. I, you know, one of the questions that I that I get a lot from non Christians, uh, and I'm not always sure entirely how to answer this, but I think you might have a better response than I will. And it's if there is a God. And if he is all loving, then why is there evil in the world? And why would he allow that? Yeah, it's a great question. It, in fact, it's probably one of the most asked questions in apologetics uh, out there. Um, I would simply ask the person, and again, I would just say, well, how do you know what's evil? Well, how are you describing evil? Because as C.S. Lewis said, there's. We don't know what a straight line is unless we know, or we don't know what a crooked line is unless we know what a straight line is. So they're operating on this assumption that you know evil relate in relation to what? You know, where, where do we get the whole idea of evil from? So there's a couple of different answers uh, that when we talk about the problem, the problem, and I use this in quotation marks, the problem of evil, as it's known in apologetics, um, and that is this that. Um, it's, if I put it in a syllogistic form, which I mean just in an argument form, we could put it this way. Um, God exists. Evil exists. God is good. Um, you know, or, or, you, know you, you put these in a syllogistic form, and you, you look at those statements, and you're like, well, they can't all be true. If God is good and, and, and evil exists in the world and he's good, how can all three of those be true at the same time? Uh, so what people do is they deny one or the other. They deny God's existence. They deny that he's good or they deny evil. So the, the problem of evil is a problem, and I say problem, for not just the Christian, but also for the atheist as well. Because if there is no God, you know, it's it, then uh, there really is no, number one, there's really no such thing as evil. It's, it's just in relation to what? Evil in relation to what? So I would, I would point out to the person... Uh, that the only way that we can know right and wrong or really good and evil is it, that if we already have this innate understanding of right and wrong in our hearts. In fact, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2, where he basically says to, to the Romans there, the church in Rome, he says the Romans, they're the Gentiles, they don't have the law, the law, the Torah, they don't have the Ten Commandments. But Paul says they have the law written on their hearts. So there is this innate sense of right and wrong, this innate sense of morality uh, in the heart of every person. Um, but evil is, uh, there's two ways that we approach this. You could answer the question from a logical standpoint to show that uh, there is no logical inconsistency between the problem of evil or evil's existence and God's existence. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. And then the second issue not just logically, but you could also answer the question uh, from a pastoral standpoint. So, for instance, let's say a hurricane happens or an earthquake happens, you've got a, a tremendous loss of life. Well, let's just say you know somebody who lost a loved one in this horrendous earthquake. You know, there's been 10,000 people got killed in a city in an earthquake, and uh, you're not going to launch into this you know, logical explanation of the problem of evil. You're going to put your arm around that person. You're going to love them. You're going to, you know, try to uh, console them and and be their friend and just be there for them. So that's one way in which we respond to the problem of evil. But the logical, really, what I think what you're asking is really about the logical problem of evil, and that is how 
how is the how is it the fact that there is evil in the world and yet God exists? How can that be? Well, let me just say in response one thing. Number one, it's not an argument necessarily against God's existence um, uh, per se. So, it, it, and that's number one. And number two is this, and that is that it depends on how you define evil. Um, so. St. Augustine, uh, the great theologian back years ago, he basically defined evil this way. And I think he's absolutely right. He called it a, basically it's like a uh, it's a it's a metaphysical lack of the good. And so God obviously didn't he created all things good, and evil is a lack of the good that ought to be there. So God did not create evil. It was it was actually came on the earth when humans uh, chose uh, you know chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden. So, so it's, there's no logical inconsistency between the presence of evil in the world and God's goodness. And not only that, Christ came and died on the cross and took evil on his body so that he could defeat it. And one day it will eventually all be defeated you know, when he comes back. So it's a, it's a difficult problem. Uh, it's uh, something that's you know, people we all, we all have to deal with. We have to deal with it with our atheist friends. There's a really good book on it that I'd recommend um, uh, if those who you know want to dig more into this. It's by uh, a philosopher named Paul Copan, C O P A N. The name of the book is "Is God a Moral Monster?" Uh, question mark. And it's a really great book. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, I, I know Paul is a great guy, and he does a really good job of answering this problem of evil. And it's uh, it's a really a fairly easy to read book. So uh, I would. I recommend folks to check that out. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think it just comes down to free will, and and you know, my, one, I, I think the explanation you gave was perfect. You, one of the things that I usually say is that, you know, I always go back to Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned, and that's usually you know why we have evil in the world. But I usually go into a little bit more lengthy explanation, but then I always add, you know, it's about free will. I mean, we. You know, God's a gentleman. He he won't interfere. <laughs> and uh, un- unfortunately, this, you know, natural disasters happen. It's just a part of life. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the thing, too, about, you know, the explanation of the free will defense, um, there's a if you want to get really philosophical on this, there's a, another book by a Christian philosopher by the name of uh, Alvin Plantinga, and it's called God, Freedom, and the Evil. And it's, it's sort of a logical, a little concise, logical uh, evaluation of this issue. And what he shows, what Plantinga shows, is that there is no inherent logical inconsistency between evil, the presence of evil in the world, uh, and God's existence and God's goodness. Uh, but So the reason why that book's important is because someone, he, he just uses pure logic. And a person that's an atheist might not accept the Genesis account of the fall of man or free will. So even though as Christians we do believe that, we hold that, uh, someone who's an atheist might just categorically reject the whole idea, well, I don't even believe in Adam and Eve, so that's not good enough for me. Well, if that's the case, then, then you'd point him to Alvin Plantinga's book on, free, on God, freedom, God, freedom, and evil. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It, it really, from a theological standpoint, it comes down to free will. And God is a gentleman, and God uh, allowed free will at the beginning, and uh, man abused his free will, and that's what uh, allowed evil in the world.
Thank you. Yeah, abuse is definitely an understatement, right? Um, <laughs> so, all right. So, so veering back a little bit back to, you know, the science side of it um, and the archaeology side of it, specifically carbon dating and radiometric dating, the, the forever debate, you know, um, I don't think that I personally realized just how off the reality is of how that works from what people believe it is until I took an apologetics class. You know, and I think uh, carbon dating, what can only go, can go back 50,000 plus years, maybe, yeah. and radiometric um, uh, supposedly can tell us the age of a volcanic rock. But so, I mean, how, how do they how do they continue to or evolutionists? How do they continue to say, OK, yeah, it's been four and a half billion years since the Earth came here or 65 million years since dinosaurs disappeared? How do they continue to do that when, you know, these these tests really aren't what they say they are. Right. Well, the, the question you're, you're raising is a great question, and a lot of it I get asked ask the question a lot. When we talk about the age of the Earth, that's something that uh, I don't really discuss as far as – it's not that it's not important. It's very important, but it's really out of the realm of archaeology. I mean, because when you get back into ancient history, that you're talking about prehistory, you're talking geology and paleontology, and archaeology really focuses on – the material cultural remains of human cultures. So when we're talking about uh, radiometric dating, things like that. Now, there is application for radiocarbon dating in archaeology, when which we date pottery or actually organic material in pottery. Um, if there's any organic, like uh, charcoal or any type of organic remains like bone or something like that. But you're correct in the fact that uh, there is a limitation on radiocarbon dating. And there's a lot of assumptions that are built into radiocarbon dating as well. Um, in the late Bronze Age, there's actually a, an offset, a uh, radiocarbon offset of about 200 years or so. And what I mean by that is that there are a couple of locations, maybe more, in which uh, archaeologists in Egypt and also in Levant and Israel, they know these archaeological sites date to the late Bronze Age, but the radiocarbon dates are off by 200 years. So... Um, so we know that they can't be accurate 100%. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not useful. They're very useful. But uh, but in archaeology, the, the dating method is really by pottery. And uh, there's other ways to date as well. But we date by pottery and, and by something called historical synchronisms, in which we actually have a known historical event uh, that we can correlate with the biblical record and also the secular record as well. And there are several of those that that we find throughout the uh, ancient Near East and that really give us some very firm dates. Uh, one would be the uh, destruction of uh, Lachish and the an invasion of Jerusalem, or at least the, the uh, not the sack of Jerusalem, but rather the, the Assyrian king Sennacherib in 701 BC in the 8th century. We know that's a very firm date. So whenever we, whenever we come to those layers and the archaeological layers in Jerusalem, we know that if we find burnt burn pottery in the Iron Age uh, in Jerusalem in the 8th century, we know that it very likely was by the Assyrian army. Uh, it was actually at Lachish, not Jerusalem, because Jerusalem uh, was not taken, uh, according to the Assyrian records and also according to the biblical record. So I don't know if I answer your question, but yeah, you're right, you're right in, in, in uh, pointing out uh, that there are huge discrepancies with uh, how people date uh, the, the fossils and things like that. But those questions are uh, a question about paleontology and uh, in which you get into ge geological time 
Uh, and but again, that's it's a very important question. I would say the archaeological record begins in very likely. I would probably place it in the um, transition between the Neolithic and the uh, Paleolithic. Um, so so basically, this is when humans again again. This there's a lot of discussion about this. So uh, Christians are divided over this question even today. Uh, I I actually happen to hold to a global flood, and but some Christians hold to a local flood. Uh, but if there was a global flood that destroyed the world uh, before Noah, uh, you know, and after Noah, the, the world began to repopulate after the flood, then uh, I sort of place these early human civilizations as coming on the scene after the flood. So that, so we're talking about mm, four to five thousand years ago, somewhere, somewhere in that ballpark, and that's where we see the archaeological record begin. So I, I don't know if that sort of answers your question, but Anything before that, um, it's it, you know. Again, it depends on if you if you hold to a literal reading of Genesis. Then a lot of scholars will say that uh, you know the genealogies in Genesis five are literal, and that you know you're talking about a time frame between Moses or between excuse me between Adam and Gen- uh, Noah about fifteen hundred years. So not a not a huge amount of time, not a long amount of time at all. No. There's not, there's, there's not even, there's, it's not really even quantifiable how, how drastic of a difference that is, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. So again, there's a, this is something that archaeology does. We, this is something that I'm personally interested in is prehistory in the relationship between these really, really early, because the, here's the thing, the further we go back in time, so uh, it's sort of like, um, do you guys remember the old Polaroid cameras, you know, you take the picture and the little thing shot out. <laughs> you had to kind of wave it around in the air. And kind of like, so it's sort of like this uh, slowly, slowly developing picture. But but the further we go back in time, so let's just take the biblical timeline. You know, we've got the New Testament. That's a pretty clear archaeological historical. We've got a pretty clear record of that. But as we push further and further and further back into the Old Testament, we're talking about to the time of David, and we get back to the Judges period, then we go back to the Conquest, then we go back to the Exodus. Then before the Exodus, we've got the sojourn. Then before the sojourn, we've got the patriarchs. We've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And before that, we've got the Tower of Babel. And so the further we go back into early, early biblical history, the the, the, the darker it gets uh, in the archaeological record. That doesn't mean that there's not historical evidence, but it's just the fact that you don't have a lot of there's. I mean, the, the world is not as populated as it was as it is today. So we don't have, we have you know a few records, but we that's where, why I'm interested in ancient history and um, uh, issues around the uh, the time of the flood because I think this is really going to help us give us illumination into the uh, early period of biblical history. Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you can't really know where you're going unless you know where you've been, and and this is. This is what fascinates me about archaeology. It's just, it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you you are. You're the real-life Indian Jones. <laughs> I have completed that. <laughs> well, hopefully we won't be uh, around any snake pits. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, we'll just have to start making flyers and, and maybe helping you with marketing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you as well is that, you know, it seems like more and more Americans are just migrating away from religion, particularly Christianity. Yeah. And I've heard some say that religion has just lost in its, in its appeal, while others, you know, they just see it as a problem. 
what, what do you make of that exactly? And, and what do you think are the most effective ways of pointing people to God's goodness, his existence, when faced with opposition? You know, uh, it's, it, that's an interesting question. Um, and I just got back from Turkey uh, just a few days ago. I was uh, there for about 10 days. I was in Istanbul, which I... I knew it was a large city, and I didn't realize how large it was. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Istanbul is one of the largest cities in the world. It has 15 million people in Istanbul. It's enormous. And I'm, I'm in Chicago, and this, this is a big city, but, but it's, it's amazing to think Istanbul is larger than Chicago from a population standpoint. Um, but when I was there, um, I was I was able to ride the, the public transportation, which they have this tramway system, and it's literally it's it's been it's been the news all over Turkey, and a lot of folks in Istanbul are really uh, bummed about the fact that you're just people are just crammed in these trams. But anyway, to answer your question, I'm in the tram and I'm noticing the people in Turkey. Now, now Turkey is a, a 95% Muslim country. And yet everybody is on their cell phone. And I, I was looking kind of, kind of a little bit, a little eavesdropping. Everybody's on Instagram. Everybody's on Facebook. And it was in Turkey. So this whole idea of secularism uh, is not just in, in the West. It's not just in Christian, Christian Europe or America. It's around the world. And it's in Muslim countries. Uh, it is in uh, Western countries as well. Um, so there's a book written years ago, sort of prophetic in a way, uh, the name of the book is by Neil Postman. It's called "Amusing Ourselves to Death." If you guys have never read that, you've got to check it out. It's it's truly prophetic. He wrote back back in the eighties, I think in the early eighties, eighty three, I think is when he wrote it. The name of the book again is "Amusing Ourselves to Death" uh, by Neil Postman, and he talked about the radical change that's going to take place with the advent of computers and computer technology and things like that and how it's really going to change the way we think and i think it's not just any one thing i think it's a whole sort of constellation of things that have sort of conspired against the, uh, the decline in religion in america um in addition to that you add to the case uh the fact that in many churches christians are star are, are spiritually malnourished or, be, or being entertained and this is sort of what Postman goes back to. He talks about the entertainment value of uh, you know of everything, of, ed- of education even. And even in our churches, we're entertaining people, and uh, we're not really educating them, and so they don't have a foundation. So we've got one of the largest number, uh, growing numbers of groups today are the nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, not, not nun as in Catholic nun, but uh, people, young people today, 18 to 24, who are basically saying they have no religion or no religious affiliation at all. And, um, you know, I, I don't know the exact reason for it. But again, except to say that secularism, uh, the atheism, and I think also, let's just, let's just say what it is. I mean, I think the whole idea of freedom, and people don't want a religion to tell them what to do. They want to do what they want to, you know, they want to live in their sinful lifestyle. And I think that there's the appeal to that. Uh, there's the appeal to not being accountable to any anybody or anything. Um, in addition to the fact that we're sort of we're becoming more and more narcissistic and more you know self-centered, and uh, so so religion is sort of taking a back seat, and Christianity is is sort of suffering the same thing. So I think I think it's a combination of a lot of things, but. Um, uh, you know, when I when I go to teach at churches, I think people want more, 
And there's a basic principle for pastors. You can't give what you don't have. And a lot of pastors are just sort of spoon feeding people and not giving them the meat. They need solid food and you can't grow. You can't mature without solid food. And I think, I think that's a, a big problem today. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, you know, and I, I, I do a lot of health stuff and I'm passionate about that as well. And, you know, it's the same thing, you know, people want fast food and they want fast, fast spirituality. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you nailed it right on the head. That is exactly right. I mean, it's, it's like, um, in fact, I wrote an article from my own personal blog, uh, about this and it was, it's, it's at the name of the article has come to the table. And, and one of the points I try to make in the article is that God is not fast food, but God is food. I mean, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water, you know. So Jesus himself is food. And when we take this in this, the elements of the, the Lord's Supper, you know, the, he is food, but he's not fast food. He's not a McDonald's Happy Meal. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> McDonald's Happy Meal is not a Happy Meal. But... <laughs> not at all. And no, you know, but... I, I deal with that a lot too. At uh, I, in my work with drug addiction, they they want the the quick fix. They Instant want they want to yeah. get over yeah. the withdrawals. They want to get over the depression, the anxiety immediately, and they don't yeah. realize you know you've been addicted to cocaine for the past 20 years it's going to yeah. take some time yeah for and, sure um, yeah well Ted, i i really wanted to thank you a lot for being here i mean i think you're just incredibly knowledgeable and i i absolutely love your facebook page i've been sharing it too on my thank on you my personal well. facebook yeah it's a, it's great the, the name is great <laughs> <laughs> you know i named it because i uh, really what it's really about God's epic love. I mean, it's the epic, it's the true epic. You know, we talk about the Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, but really the greatest epic in the whole world. It's a true story. It's, it's God's love for us. And he, 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 you know, he basically launched this campaign in history to rescue us. And, and there are hero, heroes in the story. And Christ is the, is the ultimate hero. And he is who, who we should exalt. So it's all about him. Originally, I think you're, the name just kind of your page just randomly showed up on on my Facebook feed of things that I may like, and I go epic archaeology. What's that? And then I clicked on it, and then I'm looking through your Facebook page, and I'm seeing all these awesome things about you know biblical archaeology. I'm like, wow, I got to follow this page. And then a few weeks later, I'm just like, you know what? I really need to talk to this guy. <laughs> and so, I, <laughs> and so, I, yeah, I'm very. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, it, always, it amazes me because people are interested in, you know, in the subject. But then when you combine the, the you know, the spiritual or the God aspect, then people tend to tend to shy away from it. Oh, no, I can't 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 be interested in that. And I admit it could be true. Um, exactly. But you, you, you are an amazing source of information and such a true joy to talk to and and for giving us this time. Almost an hour is just really appreciated. And I know that that all the people that follow us and people who don't probably will be following you when they hear this, because, you know, you, you really, you really make it easy to understand, um, you know, from not just, cause it's not just your opinion. It's, it's what, you know, thank you. It means the world. I'm, I'm very grateful. It's, it's a great honor to be with you guys. And, and thank you for what you do as well. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate it. So if people wanted to, 
contact you for for maybe speaking at their school or their their university or just they just wanted to get in touch with you and learn more about who you are and what you do or or just somehow getting involved what what are the ways to do that absolutely um so we're all across social media of course we've got uh, our facebook page epic archaeology they can also go to the website it's epicarchaeology.org and we have uh articles on there and we have something called a, an artifact gallery in which uh, they're, they're shareable across social media. So we have these biblical artifacts. It's sort of like having a miniature biblical archaeology museum on your computer. And you can share these artifacts. And, and we, we put those on every you know, week. There are two or three articles or, or artifacts every week. But then if they need to email me or want to ask a question or, or invite me to come speak or do a podcast, it's uh, TED, T-E-D, at epicarchaeology.org. Uh, also check it out. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter as well. And also, one other thing I'll mention: uh, next year we are going to be uh, leading a trip uh, to Israel on an excavation at Shiloh, Shiloh, as we call it in Israel. And so, if they want to check us out there, they can also go to to tours, and it'll say Israel 2020. Uh, if you're in the Chicago area, I actually uh, lead trips to the Oriental Institute Museum at the University of Chicago. Our next trip is on uh, November the 16th. Uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning. So uh, check that out as well. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, you may find me there on that Israel trip. Yeah. That, that <laughs> sounds like something that, yeah. that I want to do. And it'd be great to meet you in person too. So Absolutely. You, you get to dig into Israel. But what better place to do it? Thank you again to Ted Wright for being our guest. Please visit us at thinkintentional.com to learn more about us and our services. Remember to subscribe on our website, iTunes, or Blueberry for the latest episodes.